Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and Happy New Year. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in for our first episode of 2017. And today's show is brought to you by WarbyParker.com. Get a free five-day home try-on. All you have to do is head on over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. You can go to the show notes for today's show, or you can head over to the tab that says Resources, and click on the link for Warby Parker. You'll get five pairs, five days, 100% free. Okay, so today's episode is with the ever amazing, lovely Dr. David Butler. Dr. David Butler, Dr. Lorimer Mosley, Dr. Mark Jensen, they were all here in the States teaching EP3, one in Philadelphia and one in Seattle. David Butler was also here teaching two days of explained pain and one day of graded motor imagery. I took the graded motor imagery class. I took the EP3 class, and it was amazing. Some of the best uh, professional experiences I've ever had. I mean, I learned so much from the instructors and from all the other people there. And it was just a great experience. It was positive. It was happy. People were, you know, you're there with like-minded people. And it was just amazing. And I was honored that uh, David decided to sit down with me after the graded motor imagery course for this interview. So for those of you maybe not familiar with Dr. David Butler, he is a physiotherapy graduate of the University of Queensland. He has a graduate diploma in advanced manipulative therapy, a master's degree by research from the University of South Australia, and a doctorate in education from Flinders University. David is a clinician, an international freelance educator, an adjunct associate professor with the University of South Australia, and an honored lifetime member of the Australian Physiotherapy Association. His professional interests focus around the integration of neurobiology into clinical decision-making and public and professional education in pain, stress, and performance management. Food, wine, and fishing are also research interests. So we sat down for, this is a nice long discussion, guys. You're going to love it. Some of the highlights, uh, we talk about David's patient-centered updates in Explain Pain Supercharged. That's right. There's a new book. I'll talk about it in a second. How the immune system and nervous system interact and impact pain symptoms. David explains those sims and dims and how to treat the patient more holistically. And we give a really great example of sims and dims that happened to me earlier this year, or I should say last year. Evidence for opioid alternatives that everyone possesses in their brain and so much more. You know, one of the David's big beliefs is that knowledge is the greatest pain liberator of all. And I would have to agree 100%. Now, uh, we talk a lot about the new book, Explain Pain Supercharged, and it will finally be let out in 2017. David and Lorimer will tell you all about it when it's released and how to get your hands on it as soon as you can. Um, But like they say on the website for now, just clear some space on your desk so you can probably go to noigroup.com to learn more about that when it's going to come out. Uh, I know I'm excited for it. A lot of EP3 uh, was taken from the Explain Pain Supercharged book. And a lot of our discussion today, the, the this podcast today with David, a lot of it is also taken from the Explain Pain Supercharged book. So uh, before we get to that, again, I just want to 
Remind everyone that for the listeners of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, Warby Parker is offering a free five-day home try-on to give you the opportunity to check out their glasses. So I and I figured today's episode was perfect because David Butler has some of the best glasses in the business. So whether your eyesight is pretty darn good or absolutely abysmal, Warby Parker has you covered with a wide range of prescription options, including digital free-form progressive lenses. For those of you with strong prescriptions, Warby Parker offers ultralight high-index lenses so you'll never look like that kid in the sandlot with the Coke bottle glasses again. And so how do you get your hands on it? Go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. In today's show notes, there'll be a link to Warby Parker. And on the website, head over to the resources tab, click on Warby Parker, and get your free offer. Okay, with all of that said, let's get to today's episode, our first episode of 2017 with Dr. David Butler. Hey, David, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Hey, Karen, great to be here and always great to be back in the U.S. Yeah, so just so people know, uh, we are sitting here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. David has just spent about three days. You've been here for three days. And doing two days of Explain Pain and one day of Graded Motor Imagery. I came to take Graded Motor Imagery, which I have been wanting to take now for a couple of years, and it was Fabulous. So thank you very much. I definitely got a lot of little hints and nuggets that I wasn't doing before that I think, well, I have so many patients with CRPS, so it it is just a wealth of knowledge. So I thought it was great. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Karen. It was a great group, too. They were really good probing questions. And it's nice to see now this thing, GMI, has been out there for a while, Explain Pain's been out there for a while, and it's great to see clinicians coming back wanting a bit more of it, wanting a deeper a deeper use of the, um, the work. Yeah, and I think when you start diving into to the Explain Pain uh, book that you just you start learning about it and then you realize that you want to learn more yeah. and then you learn more and then you realize that you continuously want to learn more. That's exactly it. And it's, it's this, it's an interesting thing because, um, I guess explain pain is, is, well, the essence of explain pain of course was always to try and change pain from being a marker of injury and disease to being a marker of the perceived need to protect. That was always the element in it. And it still remains the core the core thing of, of um, explained pain. But of course, what's happening is the world of neuroscience, the world of neuroimmunology has just moved so fast. But if you can keep up with it, you can extract some really good stories from modern neuroscience and immunology to really power up the explained pain story. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what we're here to talk about uh, Uh, a little more in depth today. And one of the things that you and Dr. Lorimer Mosley have done is you have been sort of behind the scenes working on a new version of explained pain. So talk about the explained pain supercharge and why did you feel it was necessary to expand upon version one and version two and how is it different? Sure. It's a great term, isn't it? Explained pain supercharged. Yeah, I quite like that. Yeah, Is that yeah, okay yeah, with yeah. you? I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Great. Explained Pain was was written, and the first edition was 2003 with an update in 13, and that still remains really current as a as a book for patients, although we quietly admit we did write it for health practitioners as well too. 
Explain Pain Supercharged is a book for the clinician, right? So it's actually quite separate and the two work in concert together. So Lorimer and I have been quietly, it's taken us five years, Karen. Can you believe that? I, no. Just I mean, that is behind, commitment. That's commitment sitting and, and behind the scenes. And that's commitment not only to explain pain, but commitment to Lorimer. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he's a busy, he's a busy boy. Yeah, and yeah. so it's, um, it's been quite a journey and it's just about to emerge. We should have it out maybe February next year. It's at the typesetters now. But um, Supercharged has been um, quite a trip. Uh, Lorimer has actually in it rewritten a lot of our current concepts of pain and it's actually quite novel and that is um, things like uh, the concept of a neurotag and how that extends right down the dorsal horn almost as though the brain is too full and the concept of neurotags exists right down the spinal cord and our, our, our old concepts of, you know, we draw these things coming into the dorsal horn going up. That's not mm-hmm. really true. Mm-hmm. There's an incredible mm-hmm. amount of spinal cord um, processing which is done. And, of course, the other thing which um, we've um, introduced now is the immune system in pain. So we're introducing people to the AMP gang. AMP? The, the AMP gang. So okay. there's DAMPs, PAMPs. Zamps and camps. So okay. a, a damp is a danger-associated molecular protein pattern. So that occurs after injury. Right? Mm-hmm. A zamp is a xenobiotic-associated molecular protein that occurs when you take opioids. So external opioids are picked up by the body as essentially invaders over time. And these will have an, an immune response. So we call this the ZAMP gang. And I think this is a real shift. These danger associated molecular patterns in our body, which are picked up by toll-like receptors, which can then have an immune response. So we're even exploring the idea of cognitive associated danger patterns. So certain thoughts or certain concepts are enough to create a molecular pattern, which is picked up by the immune system and the way you go into an immune response. And how... How does the immune system fit into the neurological system? Are we, because now there's a lot of talk of a neuroimmune system. Yeah. So why were they separate and now they're being thought of as together? And how does that affect the person in pain? Yep, that's a great, great question. They were always thought of as separate and it's probably really only... 15, 20 years, and it gained a lot of traction maybe in the last five to eight years. That, of course, um, depending where you read, at least half, maybe 70% of cells in our nervous system are cells that have an immune function. And much of that immune function is due to um, its relationship with neurons. And I don't think you can think of the nervous system apart from the immune system. For example, um, most of the um, synapses in our central nervous system have an immune cell sitting right next to them, which has some control over what goes on at the synapse. And Karen, I'm, I'm getting a bit old and I'll be retired soon, but if you ask me, I think that the notion of a tripartite synapse will become a fundamental element in modern rehab and the tripartite synapse is acknowledging that you have a pre and post synaptic uh, neuron and the tri bit is the immune cell or cell with an immune function that sits next to it and controls the function and so how does that then is that why let's say you 
have the flu, you're kind of achy all over or you're sick and, and all of a sudden you have maybe a flare up of your persistent pain condition, whatever yeah. that may be. I think that's right. And indeed, the the initial researchers on this, Linda Watkins, Mark Hutchinson and others, observed that when you get the flu, you ache. When you get the flu, we know immune profiles change. So a simple hypothesis was, oh, the immune system's got something to do with pain. But um, Karen, you touched on something really important there before. And I think it's got to be this wider view of the immune system. So you will read this definition in, in um, many books and whatever, but the immune system, a system that knows who you are, but will react when you are not you. And you are not you with an infection, but you are not you when you don't understand something, bereaved, socially dislocated, in chronic pain where no one's given you an answer for some time. And there's an immunological response in that as well, which will also link into heightened sensitivity. Yeah, or or perhaps withdrawing from society, not not doing the things that you want to do because of pain. Correct. Or you know, we would call that fear avoidance behavior. That's right, right? and, and that's right. And and um, I, you know, I think we can even look back prior to the beautiful research showing how the immune cells in our brain and cord have a relationship to pain. But even before then, psychology was showing that there's a lot of things or human behaviors which are immune healthy. And I think we can look back at them because a lot of those immune healthy behaviours are now the really key modern pain treatment devices. And that is develop coping skills, for example. It's got laughing, <laughs> laughing a lot. And you Americans need to laugh more. <laughs> well, we, we, what? Yeah, I, you know, there's actually <laughs> data that the amount of time Americans are laughing each day is dropping down. What? Really? Yeah. So when did you have your last belly laugh? Uh, belly laugh, probably two days ago. I was watching a comedy show Good. by Mike Birbiglia. He's like Good. my favorite comic. He's hilarious. Yeah. Good. So well, two days ago. You've given yourself a good immunological yeah. blast. Yeah. But exercise is there too. Having an understanding of where you're heading. You know, friends, social, social existence. These are all key immunologically healthy behaviors. And is that something that, let's say as the clinician, if I have a patient who, let's take for example, has CRPS and this person is not reaching out to friends, not going out as much, not being as social, is this an explanation that I can give to them as to how it may be affecting their condition? That would be that would be one thing, yes, that to go out to go out and get into life. Um, and again, you can't really exercise nerve cells without exercising immune cells. So withdrawal from life. And, it, you know, our brains function, um, the cells in our brain that have a mirror neuron function, they don't get that exercise in terms of just watching other people move or even interacting emotionally in groups too. So there's an emotional exercise you can do too, which has a neuroimmunological health. Right. And that's some of what we talked about today in graded motor imagery is if, if your patients with persistent pain and some of these real buggers of persistent pain that are like CRPS or phantom limb pain, that having them go and 
watch other people. We call it watching other people yes. kind of move and and walk or or kind of go about your life. But I guess in Australia, they call it something a little different. Yeah, we call it perving. Yes, and I know perving. people were laughing at the course on that. I, <laughs> I didn't realize that wasn't a term in common usage here. No, it's not. But is there anything else that you kind of want people to know about EP Supercharged that might be a little different from the other ones? Yes, there's um, actually quite a bit. And and um, one thing, if people are doing explain pain, we want them to do it really, really well. Uh, there's a few um, explain pain light sessions out there, we know, and there's some people are just doing little bits of it. But the key thing for me in explain pain supercharged and for the health of explain pain is the word curriculum. So when people say to me, hey, Dave, I've been doing a bit of explained pain, I say, well, that's great. What's your curriculum? And they look at me a bit oddly, Karen, because a curriculum means you should be able to define what are the key target concepts for that person, what's the content I use, what resources, how do I measure whether it's worked, what do I do for outliers who, who, are, who are not taking on the message, and... and um, this is a key part of the notion of curriculum. So I guess it's brought a lot of educational psychology um, into the explain pain world. And I've got to admit, I think when Lorem and I wrote Explain Pain, we did the story, but we, um, but we um, didn't really take the next step was the effective translation over. So in regard, we are taking a little bit of a step back and helping with the transition. And, Having a curriculum and knowing your target concepts and knowing your resources is absolutely critical. So that's been an interesting thing. There's one other thing that's really intrigued Lorimer and I. We've done a lot of work on metaphors. So over the years, collecting metaphors from patients in pain, but also collecting the metaphors that therapists offer back. I'll give you some examples because we've also used a lot of uh, transformative metaphor. You know, a simple example the word painkiller and the word anti-inflammatories. They're used and they're actually embedded metaphors, but they're going against two completely important human things, pain and inflammation. So we now call um, anti-inflammatories movement-enhancing medicines. Have your MEMS, and I like to call painkillers pain softeners. Huh? Yeah, so it's actually, nice. it's actually a change, and what we're really trying here is to change what a, the primary root metaphor out there has been pain is enemy. It's a primary metaphor. So therefore yes. you see painkillers, war against pain, shotgun approach. So we're trying to change, and it's a big battle, but we're going to do it, to change the primary metaphor to pain is protector. So therefore, pain softener. You can be sore but safe, hurt not harm, and to get metaphors coming off this deeper deeper conceptual metaphor. Yeah, and, and especially I think here in the United States where we have a lot of advertisements on TV for f different pharmaceuticals and things like that, which I know is different in other parts of the world. No, it's the same down under. We is follow you guys, down? yes. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but uh, it's always that pain is demonized. If you have pain, it's bad. It's That's bad, right. it's bad, it's <clears throat> bad. And, and let's be honest, in an acute situation, pain is good. Oh, pain's a wonderful like, thing. Don't you want to know if your yeah. hand's over a, a open right. flame? or Pain you is your friend. Yeah. yeah. And, and I use a, a lot of times with my patients is that, especially when they, are, they have more persistent pain, is that it's just likes you so much, it's protecting you so much, but we can help 
to allow it to let go a little bit and release you a little bit. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So I guess a classic explained pain story is the gift of pain. And um, I guess one story that comes into that, so here's a, a resource coming into a curriculum would be the story of congenital analgesia. So as we know, some people who are born without the ability to experience pain and life can be a bit unpleasant because you can't report an infection or even even a, a fracture. So pain's your, pain's your gift. Pain yeah. is a gift. I, I use that often, yeah. you know, because if you are, you have this congenital disorder where you can't feel pain, if you're appendix bursts, you don't know. That's right. So pain is it's, a gift. And it's a beautiful story for yeah. for patients that. And the, the um, comment you made before is absolutely right. So most people out there, when they weigh the world and judge everything going on in life, their body, their treatment, tend to err on the side of protection and we make too much pain. And not only too much pain, we make too much sympathetic response, endocrine response, cognitive response, respiratory response, these other homeostatic processes that the human has to protect us yeah. can also become perturbed. And they need stories too in yeah. the explained pain world. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, I, as you know, I've had, have had pain in the yes. past, Yes. Um, but for um, almost all through my 30s, you know, I guess I'm saying my age here, yeah. but almost all through my 30s. And it wasn't until I realized that I can still move and I'm not doing harm. Yes. You know, and I was always under the impression, well, I can't do this. It's going to hurt. I'm yeah. going to make things worse. I'm going to do this. And I was telling you a story today about when I was in Disneyland. Yes. Now, I, I've, been, I've been I've been pain free for quite some time. So I'm in Disneyland with Sandy Hilton and Sarah Hagen. We're in line to go on this ride that I thought was a simple jungle cruise. Yep. And we get up to the, you're in line for like an hour because it's Disneyland and you get up to where you're about to get on the ride and they say, if you have neck or back pain, this might, whatever, paraphrasing, it's, this is probably not the ride for you. And exactly what you just said, I had a full on sympathetic response. Yep. My palms got sweaty. I probably sweat through my shirt. My yep. heart rate went up. My respiratory rate went up. Sandy and Sarah saw the sign, looked over at me and they were a little wide eyed for just a second. Yep. Probably because I was like white as a ghost. Yep. And, <laughs> and my first thing is darting, my eyes started looking around. Okay, how can I get out of here? Yeah. What can I do? How can I get out of here? Because I can't go on this ride because it's going to hurt my neck. Yeah. And so, I, and for those who know, I mean, I've been relatively pain free for like four or five years now. And yet it was so entrenched in me for so long that the first thing that came into, and it's not like I, that was just my sympathetic response, right? It's mm. not like, and it was automatic. Yep. It's not like I thought about it and then said, oh, I need to start sweating. Yeah. And uh, and Sandy and Sarah, like you said, were my super sims. Super sims. Yes. Yeah, and they so were safety for you. They were my safety and me's because they said, well, you know, you're in cabs in New York all the time. They start and stop. It's just a little tilt. And and I got on the ride and I mean, I was physically shaking getting on the ride and I got off and I was fine. Great. And then I got on another ride. Good on you. And I was fine. <laughs> and what therapy is that? That's great. That's yeah. Great therapy. And that is great. So they, I should, I should pay Sandy and Sarah for you that should. therapy. Because I, I'm going to suggest that if you were with a person who wasn't creating safety neurotags in your brain as well, you mightn't have done it, and you might have gone a little bit backwards with the pain state, perhaps. Probably. Yeah. Like if I were with someone and they turned to me, they're like, "Ooh, are oh, you don't sure? Don't do that. Are you, you look sure sick. you want to do this? Yeah, yeah. It might hurt your neck. Are you sure? I would have been. 
been like, I'm out. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. Really, that's, a yeah. Good, that's a really good story. Yeah. So it was really nice to have that, those super Sims on my side there. Yes. Yeah, so a Sim, that's an interesting thing. Sims and Dims. Yes. Dims and Sims. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's yeah. define that because I don't know that a lot of people know that. And that's part of the protect. Protectometer, protectometer, or protectometer, whatever you Americans, Americans want to say. say. Protectometer, you say protectonomer. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about the protectometer <coughs> and sims sure. and dims and all that stuff. Sure. The um, um, pain definitions, and uh, we've been brave enough now to say to to use this pain definition, and it's easy to say, but it's it's backed by years of research, and the definition is this that you will have pain, we will have pain when our brains weigh the world and judge that there's more danger out there to our body than safety. Equally, you will not have pain when our brains weigh the world and judge out there that there is more safety than danger to our bodies. All right? Now, that's quite a strong definition. So I'm suggesting there's a danger-safety balance. So for people listening, if you are not in pain now, then I'm going to suggest that there is more safety out there than danger. Okay? Now, dangers and safeties hide in hard-to-find places. So, for example, few people realize that being aware that somebody loves them or cares is a safety. And that thought or concept is actually a conceptual neurotag in the brain, right? Somebody else reading about ISIS on the news or hearing about ISIS, that is actually a danger, right? So safeties and dangers hide in hard-to-find places, and they can be categorised. I'll tell you the categories. The categories are the things you hear, see, smell, taste, and touch, all right? So examples there might be, a metallic taste in your mouth could be a sense of danger. Crepitus could be danger. But safety could also be looking at blue sky, hearing the scan is clear, the touch of silk, seeing a favourite picture. The things you say can be dangerous. I'm riddled with arthritis. Right? But the things you say, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm making new flight plans. The things you think and believe. A sim could be, ah, there is a scientific way out of this. But a dim could be, oh, pain is forever. Insurance has it in for me. The places you go, hospital could be a dim danger, but hospital could be a sim too. So they can change sides. If you were going into hospital and you heard that there was a staph infection there, it might become a dim. Right? But we can also, with knowledge, a sim. So we can change this. Even the people you meet, the people you meet, some can be dims, can't they? the nosy neighbour, the out-of-date health professional, and Karen, there's a few of them around. But Sims can be up-to-date health professionals, your besties, as we say in Australia, your friends. And the other category is the things happening in your body. So I mentioned before, the DAMPs, danger-associated molecular patterns, they're essentially DIMs, where safety could be, could be um, optimism, uh, positive thinking, getting the parts of your body fixed, healthy eating. So these DIMs and SIMs can be identified and they can be, well, DIMs can be destroyed by education or DIMs can be turned into a SIM. Let me give you one example. Here's one of my favourites. It's a little story. If I see someone now with a really swollen knee, right, 15 years ago I would have said, 
Holy moly, that's the most swollen knee I've ever seen. Bloody hell, look at that knee. Jeez, where'd you get a knee like that from? These days I'll look at the knee and say, wow, well done, you old self-healer, you. Look at the swelling. You've started the the healing even before you've seen me, you old self-healer, you. Now, I'll do a really good check to make sure you haven't done anything serious. That needs further work. But I want to tell you there's some really good stuff in that inflammation that'll help you heal. And by the way, that's such a good response. I reckon any other injury you'll have in the future will heal fast too. So we've got to get the swelling out and down, but you know, well done, you're on the way to healing. So what I've done, I've changed inflammation from being a dim to a sim. Okay. Right, through, through simple education. Through simple education, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And, and I think a lot of people when they see swelling or they see bruising, it's scary. It is scary. And so with your with the proper education, you can help to kind of bring down that fear. And yeah. like I had a woman call me yesterday who said, well, I went to see the doctor and he said, I tore the labrum of my hip and I have moderate arthritis and he won't even do surgery because I'm going to need a hip replacement in a year. <laughs> and And this is it. I shouldn't, she's like, so now should I, I'm afraid to walk. I'm afraid to bend over. I'm afraid to do all of this stuff. Mm. And it took, you know, an hour or so of, of speaking with her and explaining to her that, you know, we can, we can work with this. You can strengthen this. You Mm -hmm. don't, you don't need surgery for this, you know, and, and what you see on imaging isn't necessarily the end all be all. That's right. And you know, Karen, what you've just said then, I'm sitting here and listening and I can see you've already got a curriculum in your mind, but you may have never thought you have a curriculum. It's come automatically. And I can already see key target concepts there and key target concepts that you have with that very short description were imaging findings really relate to pain. Secondly, there's a lot you can do about it. There were two key target concepts you've already got. So you've already got a powerful curriculum there as well too. Yeah, and and after speaking with her, she was like, you know, I actually feel so much better. Yeah, yeah. And and isn't that what you want, you know, rather than if I said doom and gloom, like, oh, well, you know, then we're sorry. I guess you can't walk anymore. Mm, I mean, that's crazy. That is crazy. It's crazy. And it's just, you know, I hear that and and I just think of a phrase I like to use of knowledge is the greatest pain liberator of all. Yeah. And, And it's easy. And it's, it's, well, it's, it's not easy. Well, it's a Let's skill. Let's not say it's not easy. It's a skill. It's a and skill. It's a skill. And, uh, and I think and in Supercharge, we've, um, I think, tried to, to help that skill. As I said, the protectometer helps to identify your targets. Um, there's a couple other things, too, where we also believe that um, it's important to try and help people in pain to learn about the concept of emergence. So as opposed to linear thinking, so linear thinking is A equals B equals C, and the most common characteristic of linear thinking is people have a singular blame for something. Uh, It's what he said, the surgery didn't work, the injury, and everything relates back to that, even though it happened five years ago. But of course, five years later, a pain state is now constructed by many other things, thoughts, beliefs, failed treatments, good treatments, what people have said, etc. And that's more emergent thinking, to realise that a human pain state like love and lust and anger is emergent. Many agents, many things come together at the same time to construct this output. 
So that's something which we have modules to try and teach um, emergent thinking. I'll give you an example there. Um, a problem people have, it's quite easy to teach someone about tissue healing. All right, so you've sprained your ankle because it, the tissues will go through stages of inflammation, proliferation, and sort of remodeling. It's linear. But then when you go and try and explain pain, it's not uncommon that the patient's eyes glaze over and it's as though you're talking to their forehead. And one reason we believe strongly is if that patient doesn't have an emergent framework in their brain, like a framework that your information can stick to, because pain is emergent, then they will be essentially rejecting it. So this is some of the depth of educational psychology and technique that we're also aiming and presenting in this book. And and that is oftentimes the hardest part. So when people say, oh, well, I tried to explain pain and the patient just didn't get it. That's right. Right? Or yeah. And I don't know if that's an EP light type of a thing. That is an EP light and then people give up. And um, But there's plenty of science out there now that um, we've extracted going into the deep world of educational psychology. And basically that's a really interesting point because, and I'll just dwell on that for a little bit, um, often it depends on the kind of misconception the patient has, not the actual misconception. So it's not just, if you think about it, sometimes you can talk to a patient and it's really easy. And that's just usually filling in gaps. But sometimes other patients have what we call a single grain misconception. Quite simple and you challenge it. Look, the simplest one might be someone who has a walking stick for a sore hip, but they use a stick on the wrong side. All right, but it's really easy to challenge them. You can show, look, use it on the other side. Your, your base is much stronger. Oh, good, I'm away. Or it might be a simple thing like, I've got Sherman's disease. So your description was, it's not a disease. It's a self-limiting inflammatory state. So, and then, but then people go on to more complex misconceptions, which are held at, at mental framework level. So I, and the classic one is, I have pain, therefore I'm damaged. So many people have that. And, and to address that, you need to pick at what are the key grains constructing that, what we call a sandcastle. And that might have um, evolved because they've seen the x-ray, I've had an MRI, someone said I'm damaged, I'm old, of course I'm going to have pain, I've got mum's knees. And there's probably four or five things now constructing it. And you actually need to take them out bit by bit. And of course, other mental um, sort of misconceptions may well exist because of this lack of an emergent thinking. So it's kind of a step ahead of just having the story, but what's the, what's the kind of misconception that people have? Yeah, and I remember taking, when I took Explain Pain with you way back in Quebec City as, at IFOM, yeah. which was, in, I think, in 2012, yeah. um, one of the things that you had said where it, this sort of very ingrained thinking was, well, it's God's will. Yes. This is this is it. This yeah. is where I'm at. And those people are, are definitely very, very hard to reach. And and is would that be an example of someone who who's is not does not have that emergent thinking yes. that it's coming from multiple it's like a one issue voter, if you will. It's a one issue voter, yes, or or the um, problem they have or their misconception. And you know, we have to be humble here about what mm -hmm. a misconception is based on modern modern thinking. Yes, they may not have an emergent thinking or it's held at what we call a sandstone sandstone sort of level. So there might be deep religious cultural or experiential things you know there's just mm -hmm. everybody for their whole life has told them that that uh, this is what the issue is and i also need to be frank here because in america and to a lesser extent australia we have this 
um, um, perception that when we're injured and in trouble, you go to someone to fix it. You have it fixed. And here with Explained Pain, we are actually saying quite strongly that going to some people to have it fixed is the wrong thing to do. And in many states, you can actually help it yourself with education or if you have to go to have something fixed, quality de-threatening education before and after is really powerful. Right, because if, if you always need someone to fix you, then you're never, you, you never take ownership over your body, you never take ownership over your health. That's right. And, and you're always looking for that external fix versus realizing that you are in control of your own body. And if you're not in control of your own body, then how, I I just feel like you're, if you are someone with persistent pain, how is that ever going to end if you don't have the control over it? You're giving it, you're giving parts of your body to, to other people. Yeah. You're giving it um, away. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Someone once said to me after, after uh, um, a treatment, a very, very smart man said, um, after I treated his, um, his wife um, with a, persistent ankle problem and he just said to me you just got my wife to love her foot again didn't you mm-hmm. and when I think I, I must admit I said no it's really complex than that you're paying for a lot more than that but when I reflect back I think a lot of what I did was getting her to love the foot now that is your foot it served you well for so long I know it's swollen and looking unhealthy now but it's great it's yours husband come and rub it massage it here's how you stretch it do some left right discrimination take it back into your into your life and that's essentially a re-embodiment, which is critically powered by an understanding of your own pain state. Yeah, and, and I know that that's, I can say that is what worked for me, yep. was knowing that I had control over, for in my case, it was my neck, but knowing that I had control over what goes on in my body and with my neck versus saying, well, I can't do that, that's going to hurt, or gonna hurt. I need to go to this person to fix it, or I need to... And I was a PT at the time. It's not like this happened years ago, but when you're in it, it's hard to see out of it. And so I think to have the right person and whether it be the physical therapist or or whoever healthcare practitioner it is, if you find that right person that can be your facilitator versus your fixer, you know, or your what an interactor versus operator is yep. another way of looking at it. Your but trainer, whatever you like. Whatever you want to call it. Yep. Um, but if you can find that person to help empower you, then next time you have a flare-up, you can say, oh, it's just a flare-up. I can handle this. <coughs> I don't need to run. I'm it's sure just a flare-up. Yep. Whatever. I can go to work. I can do what I need to sure. do. I can deal with that. And you, mm-hmm. if you've explored your dims and sims, you can be aware that they hide in hard to find places mm-hmm. and they can be explored. It's interesting in this country too, because in here and in Australia, we have problems with opioids. Okay, big problems with opioids. And you and I know full well that there are more deaths out there from opioids that are delivered from prescription pads than illicit. Mm -hmm. So there's a big issue issue out there, which is quite complex that I realize. I I really want people to rise up and show that there is alternatives to external medications, that your own drug cabinet in the brain can be more powerful than anything else. And I think the, the hard facts is, is that we're aware that for chronic pain, the pills basically don't work. 
the pills don't work. And the data suggests that that the NNT, that lovely statistic, the number needed to treat of how many people need to take a medication before one gets an appropriate outcome for, say, non-specific chronic spinal pain could be about 10 or 12 with, with high-level Lyrica or Gabapentin, whatever you call it here. Mm-hmm. But I'd also like to mention that the success rates for explained pain linked to quality movement are about double that. We're much, much better than that. Our NNTs are under four, okay? It's an odd little sort of statistic, but it basically means... But a powerful statistic. Oh, that's four is a, a stat Amazing. that would make a drug company salivate. Yeah. What it actually says, um, the NNT stat takes out the placebo, but said simply, it means that 30 or 40% of people who wouldn't have had any response with anything else will get a really good response, long-lasting at one year, 50% pain relief with quality explained pain, quality explained pain linked to appropriate movement, uh, movement skills and a reintroduction back to life. Yeah. And, and, you know, here in the U.S., like you said, we, there is a huge opioid problem and, and government is finally admitting that and and trying to make some changes and the APTA came out with a new campaign yes, called I the heard Choose, that. Yes. Choose PT campaign yep. um, which is I think shedding a little bit more light on the opioid problem yeah um, and it's it, it's it's horrible it's it, it breaks families it breaks lives yep. it's it I mean it kills people and and to know that there is an alternative, that doesn't involve this medication is yep. people should be jumping at the chance. People should at be this. jumping at it, and and um, those in conservative medicine rising up get the skills to be able to present this information in a really good way. And that's it's not that easy too because um, because um, opioid addiction, for example, changes memory or learning retention as well too. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in a curriculum for somebody who was opioid dependent, we would have the story of opioids somewhere, somewhere in that um, story. Yeah, and I think what oftentimes people want is the quick fix. Yep. And knowing that when when as the practitioner, when you're working with someone with persistent pain and you're working through this curriculum of explained pain, that mm. it takes time, number one. Yep. And number two, it's hard work yep. on both the clinician and the patient's part. That's the right. patient needs to work at this. The patient needs to work at it? Every day. Yep. Uh, the patient these days, though, has the, also the opportunities now increasingly of skilled multimedia. Mm-hmm. So the message can be delivered in a, in a number of ways. It can be face-to-face. It can be online. There's some really good TED Talks. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of nonsense out there, too, but there is some really good stuff that aware health professionals should be able to direct people to. Yeah, and there's an app for that. There's an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, well, I don't like to advertise too much, you know, a bit shy but just back to that um, opioid issue uh, uh, one thing that we notice is people coming off high level pain medication which is quite a skill you need to be directed by a skilled physician there Agreed. that's really yeah. important but many people think well if I come off the medication what else is there and I think it's the most important story is that people are aware that they have their own drug cabinet in their brain their own drug cabinet, which can be more powerful than any drug given by mankind for chronic pain. We're grateful for the medications for the acute inflammatory state, my word, or or the complex states, sure. But for chronic pain, you have your own drug cabinet in your brain. Karen, it's open 24-7. 
Christmas Day, Memorial Day, it's free, you don't need a prescription and there are no side effects. And the thing that really harnesses your own drug cabinet in your brain, the things that turns it on, the things that lets out a flood of those happy, helpful hormones right throughout your body are the sins, the safety in me, which is knowledge, planning, direction, understanding of why I hurt, links when I need it, a look to the future progression. What shuts it are the dims, the dangers. When there's danger out there, don't know, angry, upset, always fighting, not looking for the answer, withdrawing. These are the dims. So I always say to people, you know, the keys in your hand, you can actually open up your own drug cabinet in your brain. And when you link that to stories where, for example, somebody might have completed a a sporting match and they've been carrying a particular injury, their drug cabinet was right open. I know. When I tell people that there are more drugs available to them in their brain than they can take, people are the first where they're like, what? Like there's more than, than morphine. That's right. Well, your brain makes a yeah. very similar to morphine. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You're right. And, and, you know, it's a little exercise I would do or suggest with patients. I get them to recite them, but I really make it sound a little bit sexy. Serotonin. Encephalins, opioids, dynorphine, morphine. Your brain has its own drug cabinet and it's there for you and it's natural. Yeah, and and it's you can you overdose on it? Uh, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I'm either. sure you can't. <laughs> I've never heard of someone self-overdosing. Yes, I like that one. I must add that to my stories. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now let's say you as a clinician, you You've read through EP Supercharge when it comes out next year. Yep. You have integrated that with the protectometer. Protectometer. Yeah. Protectometer. I know. Protectometer. Right. Well, we even spelled it M E T E R, going yeah. with the Americans. We went away from the English just for you guys. Yeah. I got it. It's just like a mental yeah, block. We don't know whether it's protectometer or protectometer. Protectometer. I think protectometer actually. Okay, then protectometer it is. Sounds yep. a little bit better. Um, but as the clinician, and, and I certainly hear this a lot from students, new grads, or even people who are just getting into this information. What do I do now? Okay, uh, the first thing I want you to do is to lift your expectation of outcome. Because if you youngsters listening in here, you are so lucky. You are now in a world where we understand so much about the brain, how changeable it is, how the immune system is involved, how your education and exercise and other things can send an immune balance down to a more analgesic, analgesic end. But to really take it on, I'm going to ask you to, with your patients, to start to think, okay, what's my curriculum? And that's going to be, what are the key target concepts I need to get over with this particular patient? I can help you in Explain Pain Supercharge. For example, a key target concept might be, I am bioplastic, so I am changeable. Another key target might be, um, pain is only one production of the brain to help to help me cope. So you can bring in the immune, endocrine, cognitions, respiration, etc. Pain and imaging changes, pain and imaging changes don't relate. That's a key target concept. Another key target concept is understanding why I heard is therapy in its own right. So we have these series of target concepts that you can just sit and think, okay, that's what I need to address. And I would like you, the listener, to be able to think before an educational intervention to just jot down 
what are the key concepts you want to address in that patient. Because when you jot them down, it's going to make you think, okay, well, what resources do I have for that? Can I test it out? Let me do a trial and error with this particular patient. And that's usually the integration of quality explained pain. So rather than pulling out your same old stories all the time, what is it in that individual patient where you might need to do a target? So curriculums vary. So for example, I would have a curriculum, a common thing we're doing these days is going and talking to groups of doctors about other approaches rather than than opioids. So there might be a 20 minute talk where we have two or three key target concepts. But of course in somebody or a group where there might be a more chronic state or chronic group, we could have eight or 10 of these key target concepts. So we ask people to to try and identify them. So, uh in, after reading through all of the information, you as the just to review, you as the clinician kind of have an idea of what your what the target concepts are after yep. reading through EP mm, yep. supercharge and and maybe through the protectometer, yeah. and then when you're with your patient, even in the interview process, even in the interview process, you are kind of picking up different things that they're telling you and oh, saying, yes. "Okay, I need to." Boy, this fits perfectly into this part of my individual curriculum. Yeah. So each curriculum may vary for each individual therapist or That's clinician, right. That's and right. then it needs to be, I would think, a very flexible and living curriculum to be able to be applied to each individual patient. Yeah, well, you've got there the absolute foundation of a curriculum. You've got to have content. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a product, so it's got to have a start and a finish, and so it's sort of measurable, but it's also got to be really, really flexible. And that's a really um, critical thing in curriculum. And, and so you've got your curriculum, c- curriculum, curriculum, curriculum. See, we're not used to saying it. I know. Some people think it's somewhere near your colon, your curriculum's <laughs> in there. <laughs> and it's not. No, it's not. It's a real out there <laughs> living, 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 um, living thing. And, a living uh, thing within your practice. Yeah. You made a comment before. So when you're going through your standard assessment, uh, we've done this for years. And what we've done, when I think about it, it was early curriculum development. We, mm-hmm. When the patient said something that I thought, gee, I'd like to explain that well that's worth explaining and I put a little marker on their notes so I'll come back and explain that and typically a patient say back pain six weeks in trouble but the kind of patient who could get out of that life of chronicity by meeting a quality therapist they could have a dozen or 15 little explain pain things it could be why hasn't it got better why has it gone round into my groin uh, why is it worse at night when I'm stressed why is it worse when the mother-in-law is here all this sort of all this sort of um, sort of stuff, which actually can be quite nicely de-threatened um, and explained. But sometimes when you put those all together, you will see that, oh, there's some key target concepts I need to address here. For example, the patient in chronic pain might start talking about gut problems or slow healing, and you realise, oh, it's nice to discuss that there are other systems brought into play when you have pain. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a very good point, and 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 from what I've seen anecdotally, that is very true. Oh yeah, if you, you know, if there's you, some IBS along with people with chronic pain, CRPS. I kind of see that oh, a lot yeah. actually. It's a lot two. out there. I, I, yeah. I forget the exact data, but I think. Um, but it is interesting. I think um, one of the greatest comorbidities with chronic back pain is chronic gut pain. Mm. But for years, people thought they're two separate things. Mm-hmm. But if you come back off it 
one in the guts probably inspired more by let's say an endocrine shift where the pain in the back is more in the pain but the, the endocrine and, and the pain are both outputs of the nervous system mm-hmm. which may be in response to the same series of, of threats. Right and now we know with the recent research on the microbiome that there yeah. are these connections whether it be through the vagus nerve or Absolutely. through other pathways that have direct contact with the with brain cells. Yes so exactly. it's you know and there's some great research coming out John Crane is at a university Cork in Ireland is is kind of one of the big researchers in that area so I would encourage everyone to kind of look him up and and see the work that he's doing among others and that it links to this revolution where we are realising that there is let's call it non-traditional nociception Mm. where um, sensitivity in the gut or elsewhere and it comes Mm -hmm. back to these molecular patterns Mm -hmm. can be picked up and now that we're aware that there's particular receptors toll-like receptors in right through the central and peripheral nervous systems. They're also on cells with an immune function that they can be picked up. And it's essentially a non, it's a novel nociception back, except that this one, when it goes back to the brain, is likely to have an immune response, which is broadly going to be a um, inflammation basically without any bugs in it, non-sterile inflammation. Right, and, and again, that all feeds right back into what we said in the beginning of the conversation on how pain is an emergent property from multiple different systems. That's it. And, you and, know, and, again, and that's a great example of that. And you touch on another target concept there that would be inevitable in most education is that uh, a pain is a construction of the brain, but it's distributed in the brain. So whether there's 500,000, 200, whatever bits of brain engaged in a pain production, um, that is really useful for patients because, you know, all those dims and sims, there's a formula for pain up there. There's places in which they can all reside and have their neurotags influencing the overall pain tag. Yeah, and I mean, I think... You know, the, the bottom line with pain, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it is complicated and that it's not A plus B equals C. C. It's yeah, anything emergent is, is, is complex. Just back on that emergent thing, just to mm-hmm. get people to pick it up. Um, uh, example of an emergent phenomena would be when you watch birds in, 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 a, in, a, in a flock or fish in a, in a group or an anthill, that's, or a city. These are things that just kind of seems to happen and there's a complexity behind it. Something more linear would be uh, mitosis is linear, moon phases are linear, uh, circulation to some degree has elements of, of linearity in it, but pain being this emergent thing, meaning it's, it's due to the collective behaviour and interaction of agents in the brain producing this output into consciousness. Right, so there is a structure to it. There is a structure to it. There is a structure to it, it, but it's taking in a lot of different elements into that structure versus just a straight line structure. Correct, Uh, correct, an interaction. And one feature of an emergent state, one feature of an emergent state is that a small aberration in one part can have widespread effects. So indeed, it might just be one thought that can really kick off a response. A traffic jam is, is emergent. Mm-hmm. Many processes come together, cars, weather, 
highways, roadworks, etc. That's emergent. That's emergent. But it might just be one car which could have kicked it off. Right. And then oftentimes you get into a traffic jam and then all the, you just keep traveling on the same road and nothing's there. And you're like, how is this possible? How do like traffic patterns are the, are the right. worst thing to, uh, there's just, there's, it's like there's no rhyme or reason to a traffic jam sometimes. And, Very emergent. And it's like when you watch a flock of starlings fly yeah. in what's called a murmuration. Google murmuration and okay. you'll see some wonderful, wonderful images of birds flying. They're just lovely. Yeah. Emergent. And, and I think oftentimes when you're talking about pain, you're like, well, I, I don't... From, from the patient perspective, you're like, I don't understand. I didn't even do anything, and yet I still have this pain, right? That's you right. don't understand. I'm driving along. I didn't see an accident. There was no stalled car, yet there is this traffic. That's right. A small thing happened. That's another story. It's a story we use um, in Supercharged. I think we've collected about 80 little stories that we're going to share, and um, one of them is what we call the bilby in the bath. Now, the bilby is a small Australian animal, marsupial, not much bigger than a rat. And we've got this picture of a, a bilby jumping into a bath with a picture of Lorimer in the bath. And he's blaming the bilby for the bath overflowing. But in the bath already, there's a lion, a tiger, a hippopotamus. They're what they call the big dims. But people very often blame the small last thing that happened. Yeah, it's the same thing, Karen. Mm -hmm. We've all done this. We've all gone out and you might have had a few drinks and you always blame the last drink. Right. You don't blame the 23 you had during the day before. It's, it's that last beer that killed it. Yeah, it and, and again, you've actually got a story there which yeah. I would use yeah, for that's patients. A good one. There are so many stories yeah. that can yeah, yeah, be drawn yeah. into patient stories. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I feel like I could talk forever, but I know that you have a busy schedule ahead of you. Um, and I guess I should catch a train back to New York. But is there, I guess in, in talking about explain pain, expl I'm using quotation marks, people can't see me, but explaining pain. Yeah. What are the things, and well, maybe we can kind of end, we'll end with one other question after this, but what are the things that You've, you have seen that clinicians are getting right, yeah. and what are they maybe not getting so right? Okay. I can see, I can see a, a shift out there, and I must use my Australian um, examples there. So I can start to see, so for example, um, when Lorimer and I did our first Explain Pain class, it was in 2003 in Sydney, nine people turned up. Wow. And I remember saying to Lorimer, oh, this is not very good. We'll teach them how to crack necks as well or pull a few nerves. And Lorimer said, no, Dave, hang in there. They'll finally get it. So we're starting to see in some countries and, and home and others where there's this groundswell. So if we do a course now, even in a rural area, we see everybody turns up. Mm -hmm. So getting it right means it's shifting to all professions are coming. We expect that there'll be a lawyer or two at most courses these days, rehab people, insurance people, writers. So it's really gone out there in sort of um, into society. So that means that the people we've taught are actually getting it right and really kind of sharing it. Um, I, I would make the comment, though, that health practitioners are not really trained to be educationalists or in the arts. So playing with language, like in metaphor, or playing with educational psychology skills like curriculum development is, I think, the next step where we need to go. But I believe we have already made quite an impact with mm -hmm. the original Explain Pain 
explain pain thinking, which didn't really take in some of the deeper educational things. And as I said to you at the start of this, I have a goal, Lorimer and I have a goal, that the NNE, the number needed to educate for explain pain should be one. And that links into the United Nations goal in anything education, it's education for all. So to aim for education for all, sure, we need to build on our existing work and to add other work into it, which includes educational psychology, but also linking it to things like coaching, motivational interviewing, health coaching, which is one reason why at the moment we're linking into this notion of hypnosis. Can we induce in a person a mild state of hypnosis, which is essentially getting the person into a theta wave so our information is more sticky. But I must admit, that's not the hypnosis people think about where it's the crazy stuff where you run around like a chook. <laughs> this is understanding that hypnosis is a series of things that make an invitation for someone to listen. And that could be just the skillful use of metaphors, the interaction, you know, the, the, the invitation. So even just saying to someone that an anti-inflammatory is a movement-enhancing medicine, that could be an invitation. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is all, is all part of this, of this um, hypnotic story, which is one of the things powering along Explain Pain. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's all fascinating. I know I, for one, am excited for the new Explain yes. Pain to come out next year. And, and I think I just want to end on one last question that I've been asking a lot of therapists. So from where you're, you sit now as this sort of world-renowned physical therapist, um, what would you say to your fresh-faced, just-graduated PT school you five years ago, no, <laughs> maybe 10. <laughs> five or 10 years ago, what do, what do you mean, people who? No, so let's say, what would you say to you? So you just, grad, knowing the, oh, what yes. you know now, what would you say to yourself when what you just graduated a, from PT school? What would I say to a new graduate who's? What would you say to you even? To me even, yeah. so as you, a new graduate. As you as a new graduate X amount of years ago, knowing what you know now, where you are, in your career or maybe in life, what would you say to yourself? I would say that's a really good question. I would say to myself that, David, the stuff you thought in the stuff you taught or learned in physical therapy is just the start. And it's just a scratching of the surface. And I would then think, David, you would be in the world, as I said before, where we have this neuroscience, this neuroimmunological revolution, which could really take your profession wherever you want to go. And I must admit, Karen, if, if, if a mum or dad 10 years ago said to me, should my child do physical therapy in Australia? I'd say, oh, no, go and be a, bar a barista, go and do, do law or something. But these days I'm actually saying, no, it is a, it is a very a useful, transportable skill, which I believe has a huge future. I think that's a great advice. Thank you very much. And now if people want to find out more about what you're doing, find out about the, about the various offerings that you guys have, where can they find that? Yes, come and join us on the noigroup.com website, noigroup.com. You might like to join in our blog discussions on noijam.com. I think um, along with the Body and Mind site, it's one of the most um, used clinical pain sciences blog sites in the world. Um, ours is a little bit more clinically orientated, so lots of stories there. But noijam.com, 
um, and um, noigroup.com. And for those of you interested in the protectometer, there's links there, but you can look at protectometer.com. So that work in the in, in protectometer is also in book and app form. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I know you've had a busy couple of days and I can't thank you enough for taking the time out and helping us spread the word about uh, treating those people in pain. So thank you very much. Great. I'm going to hit the town in Philadelphia <laughs> right now. I'm going to run up those rocky stairs and right, see if I can get up right there. Run up the rocky stairs, grab a cheese steak that's and drink right. a lot of beer. That's I think right. that's what you do in Philly. Good on you. Thanks. Thanks so much. All Great right. to be back in the States. Right. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. You can follow me on Instagram and uh, Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC. And we'll have all of the show notes as usual at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So thanks for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy and smart.